Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning in this strange time. I know that uh, many of you are becoming increasingly uh, restless in this weird space of quarantine. I've been seeing the effects of it myself, even in my neighborhood. I watched my first uh, corona confrontation happen uh, with a man walking down the street with my neighbors who was so pent up, he just began to scream and rage at them uh, for wearing uh, face masks. And I just was struck by uh, the, the intensity uh, in this time, what may have at first felt for many of you uh, like a bit of a forced vacation is now feeling, I think for many, a bit like a prison. Uh, in which people just want to be with people. And it, it reminds me again and again that uh, the very thing that Scripture declares, that it's not good that man be alone, that we were meant for a relationship. We were meant to be in relationship with one another. And I just want to encourage all of you to, uh, to continue to press into Jesus in this time, to press into one another in those relationships that, um, that you have. Uh, in those those uh, small circles of friends that you're able to interact with, I, I pray that you are making that a priority. And uh, and also, I I pray that for us as a church that we're seeing this as uh, a, an opportunity, a time in which we can be conduits of God's peace when so many people are living with so much fear. Uh, we have to remember that. Uh, that Jesus is the conqueror of death, that he himself holds the keys to life and death, and that our lives are indeed in his hands, and that we must again and again come to terms with the fact that the death rate continues to be one per person. And if it's not the coronavirus that gets us, something will, but Jesus has already overcome death. And death for us as believers uh, is the means and the conduit by which we enter into more life. And so as we will continue to press into the book of Romans, reminding us of the power of the gospel, for death has lost its sting. Um, we as Christians should have a calm confidence. We may not understand what God is up to in all of this, but I can promise you he has not lost control. And so just as we look at more and more unrest in our country, uh, as we look at tensions, political tensions, uh, in the ways that a real virus that's really actually taking lives is now being politicized, I just encourage all of you to remain uh, unwaveringly uh, loyal uh, to King Jesus above all things. Uh, we're not, we are not defined um, by our uh, political leanings. We are defined by being new creation in Christ and to be conduits of his grace uh, in this time of unrest. And so I uh, just know that we are continuing to pray for you. And uh, if once again, I wanna just say more and more people are giving uh, toward uh, uh, toward benevolence uh, for the church. And if you need help, 
you are financially uh, in a difficult place, we are here to help you. We want to hear from you. And we can't help you if we don't hear from you. So uh, know that we already, as a church, we um, are joining with some other churches to uh, to actually give some financial relief to smaller churches, specifically uh, in the African-American uh, communities. Uh, uh, church communities in the area have been uh, extremely hit, and so a bunch of churches are giving to that, and we at Door of Hope are going to be contributing to that. And so we just want to continue to be the hands and feet of Jesus uh, and we want to be reminded again and again that the gospel is good news even in dark times. And so that is a perfect segue into this uh, beautiful text in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, which is what we're going to be looking at today, which is really the law of faith. Uh, and I, I know I got many emails uh, in regards to last week's message of just like how nice it was to uh, get into the good news of the gospel because we did spend multiple months looking at why the good news is so good because the bad news is pretty bad that we are broken individuals. And let me remind you of the, the key text that we considered last week uh, was, was this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul went to great pains to show us that everybody is on the same playing field, that all of us are guilty and without excuse before a holy God. But what does he go on to say? We've all fallen short. We're, we're coming up short when it comes to living up to God's standards, his holy and righteous standards. But we are justified. That is, we are made right freely. That means that it's not something that we have worked for, but it is something that we have received by His grace, that is, that unmerited favor, God's intimate presence and concern for His creation, His one-way love toward us, by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, that Jesus, as we sing, paid it all, that He took the blame and the judgment into Himself, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the God-Man, took into himself our guilt. He is truly the firstborn over a new creation. He is the one for the many, and the many and the one. And this is why Jesus is the end of the law and the fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to destroy it, he came to fulfill it. He lived the perfect life that we could not live in total and absolute dependence upon the Father um, under the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, it was that perfect life that qualified him to be the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, the lamb without blemish. He is the sacrificial lamb who stands in our place and removes the guilt of humanity's sin by taking the judgment into himself. He tastes, the one who is the author of life tasted death so that we could live. And this is why Paul now takes us into this powerful reality that righteousness by faith excludes any boasting. He says in verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man or a woman is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. 
It's not our ability to keep uh, the moral code that was meant to be the parameters by which Israel lived in covenant relationship with Yahweh, their inability due to sin to live uh, within those parameters actually is what broke that covenantal relationship, although God remained faithful even though his people were faithless. And through Jesus, who is both uh, the redeemer of the world, but also Israel's Messiah, and I would argue he is the chosen one who is uh, able to stand in the gap for those that come up short, which is the whole essence of the gospel. He fulfilled uh, the law where Israel failed. He becomes true Israel, and, 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 and that is a very true way of saying that he becomes the representative uh, who fulfills the very things that God was trying to accomplish through a nation. That, that hope and that promise is fulfilled in its Messiah. And that's why it's always important for us to remember that the gospel is anchored in human history. Uh, that Jesus is, is the Son of God and the creator of the cosmos, but he is also Israel's long-awaited Messiah. The Messiah has come, even though much of Israel today still awaits its Messiah. Sadly, he has already come. Uh, and here we have this great statement that humanity cannot achieve its own salvation. I cannot save myself. And I don't know about you, but this has been a fundamental truth uh, that was actually one of the things that drew, uh, that drew me uh, as the Spirit was revealing the truth of who Jesus is to the gospel. It was that powerful verse in Matthew when Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I realized that is an impossible statement. And that's exactly the point. We cannot be perfect. We are trying our best to be perfect, but we cannot be perfect. And the, the fact is, is that every human effort to, uh, to bring salvation uh, based upon what we do uh, always leads to despair and failure. And yes, there are some people that are more disciplined than others. There are some people that live morally upright lives, but there is still a nagging voice uh, that lies at the back of the, of the human heart that recognizes that there is something fraudulent about us. There is something fundamentally wrong. There is, there is this reality that we have come up short. No matter how close one can get to the target, we have still come up short. Paul would actually go on in, in another one of his letters to say that of all of the, of the, the Pharisees, he lived the most zealous. He lived the law, he crossed all his T's and dotted all his I's, and yet he still came up short. He said, the law didn't bring salvation to my life. What it revealed was that I was sinful and lost. And so he says, there is no boasting then. It's excluded by, by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man or woman is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. What does the gospel do? At its most base level, it removes self-sufficiency. You know, one of the hardest things for us to do as people is to recognize that we are fundamentally broken and need help. You know, what I love about, uh, I've been reading through uh, 
the big book, the AA book, because uh, I've been very fascinated by AA and its history and the beauty and the power of people coming together who recognize that they have a problem and that they cannot overcome that problem on their own. I love that it's a place where there is no judgment, but it's a place where people come to confess their need for help. And it is through the confession of their brokenness that they actually find victory over that brokenness. There is no boasting. There is just simply, I need help. It's the first step in the 12-step program. And really, it should be the first step in every true church experience. We should begin our services with, Hi, my name's Josh. I'm a sinner. Uh, because this is what qualifies me to be a saint. It is my confession that I am incapable of working out my own salvation. It is Jesus who has worked out my salvation for me. And as I depend upon him, I work out the results of that salvation as I walk in faith, calmly recognizing that Jesus has paid it all, recognizing that at my worst moment, Jesus is crazy about me. And it's when I truly believe that Jesus loves me, not because I am somehow lovable, because I know in the depths of my being that I'm not that lovable. Uh, but what he loves me for is because it is his nature to do so. While we were yet still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. The total package of salvation from beginning to end is conceived in the mind of God and made possible only through the work of Jesus and is offered to sinners in the form of a free gift. But a gift that is given must be a gift that is received. Now, a lot of people really struggle with this and ask the question, like, where does obedience fit into all of this? And Paul's going to get to that. But let me just say the basis of our salvation is not what we do for God, but what God has already done for us in Jesus. That's why I always say that the invitation to you who have never said yes to Jesus is the invitation to say yes to a God who has already proclaimed yes over your life in his son. Will you accept that gift? I've met plenty of people that have a really hard time accepting gifts. It's, it's almost like a, uh, it's a violation of principles that we're taught to not receive things from others, that what we have we should work for. And this is why the gospel is so upside down. I just read this great story. Um, I've been rereading again Paul Zoll's beautiful book on grace called Grace and uh, Grace and Practice. And he tells a story of a Lutheran minister who said that when he was a young man uh, in high school, uh, he was drunk with his friends and he wrecked his father's car. He had to call his father and say, Dad, I just wrecked your car. The first thing that the father asked, who is also a minister, said, are you okay? And the son said, yes. He said when he got back to the house, he was in his father's study and he began to weep before his father and confessed that not only had he wrecked his car, but he had actually been drinking and driving. And the father's response was this, well, why don't we tomorrow go buy you a new car? This is how fundamentally upside down grace is. It is getting what we do not deserve. That's why I often say grace is unfair. Uh, we would think 
well, shouldn't he, shouldn't there be consequences? I mean, he was drunk driving, he endangered other people, he endangered himself. Yes, he had truly broken some basic laws, real laws in the land, but the father chooses to give him something that he absolutely does not deserve. The son is guilty, but what he gets instead of payment for that guilt, uh, he gets grace, a gift in its place. Not only does he find that the guilt uh, or the, the crime that has been committed uh, is, is forgiven by the father, but it's beyond that. The father goes above just saying, it's okay, son, I forgive you. He says, not only do I forgive you, but I want to bless you in spite of your action. This is why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God's work is what was accomplished on the cross of Calvary. The law of faith excludes boasting since the only works that can produce salvation within this system are done by God himself through Jesus. So what is our response then? The thing that we have the, uh, the responsibility to do as sinners is is to respond to these, how we react and respond to these divine works is to receive the benefits generated by them. You know why that's so difficult for so many people? Is because it violates the human ego. It forces us to recognize that we need help. And we think that, that that is a sign of weakness. When people say to me, Christianity is for the weak, I say yes and amen. Because I came to the end of myself. I recognized that my self-sufficiency was getting me nowhere in life. And at 27, I said, Jesus, I need help. God, if you are there, please help me. Save me. I cannot save myself. This was the beginning of my journey into the most powerful and revolutionary years of my life. And that's 20 years ago now. And I am so grateful uh, for the, the revolution that Jesus has brought in my life because if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. And I am not sin-free now that I have put my trust in Jesus, but I recognize that in Christ, I am sinless. I am seen by the Father as one who is covered by the Son. And the more I understand His love and what it is that He has accomplished in me and for me, it is the more I find that my heart's affections are turned toward Christ and the desire to move in obedience is not driven by a, a, an attempt to earn something that is already mine, but it's a desire to please someone that I just love to be with. And this is the beauty of the gospel. I think a lot of confusion can often come around what actually is faith. And I've given lots of definitions of faith. I, I, I love Karl Barth's definition. I use it. I've used it in so many sermons, you're probably tired of hearing it, but I think it's really helpful that faith in Christ uh, is allowing Christ to do for me and be in me what I cannot do for or be in myself. And I think that that is a beautiful picture of what real faith is. I think a lot of people confuse faith with, with this idea of sort of casual belief. I believe God exists, 
But belief in God or even belief in Jesus means nothing if it is not driven by, um, by a dependence upon Christ that he might have the ability to be himself in and through us by the presence of his spirit. That's why I always say that faith really includes really two components. The first is an ascent. I, I would say that when I first came to faith, it, was, it began with that, uh, that, that intellectual ascent. I believe that Jesus is everything that he said he is. I acknowledge the truth of the gospel. This is that cognitive act. It's a judgment of the intellect based on sufficient evidence that God, I, there is, the Holy Spirit has revealed the truth of who Jesus is, that our faith is not blind faith, but it is actually, it's actually grounded in 2,000 years of history. And, and this, this cognitive ascent is essential to saving faith, but it is it comes up short if that is the only side of our faith. For the other side is trust. The second component of saving faith is acknowledging the trustworthiness of a person and trusting yourself or something you value into another person's care or surrendering yourself in some sense to that person. That's what trust is. It's not just I believe that Jesus is there. We might have the intellectual assent, but it must take root in the heart, which means it manifests in a life that now lives with a continual dependence upon Jesus. This is why um, Paul says this paradox, this kind of upside down reality, and when he says, work out your faith um, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians, is he, is he, contradicting himself because he just said that we are not saved by our works but we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus in his work what is he saying well first of all he's speaking to the church and he's saying work out the reality of this salvation that is total uh, in its in its completion there's nothing to add to it nor can you take away from it but the fact is, is that salvation is often not appropriated in the believer's life because they have assent, but they do not have surrender. They do not have trust. Uh, this is one of the fundamental issues that often come up in marriages that are struggling, is there is, there is a, a, a missing trust, an implicit willingness uh, to truly trust your, entrust yourself to another. It's like when, when you play that game of someone standing in front of you with their back to you and you ask them to close their eyes and to fall backwards into your arms. And a lot of people, it's really stressful because they become completely dependent upon the person uh, that is behind them to catch them. And I think that a lot of people believe that Jesus might be behind them, but they're not willing to put their weight upon him. And, and I think that this is probably, you can, if I come up on my motorcycle and I say, do you want to ride? You can believe that it's me on the motorcycle, uh, but you aren't putting your trust in that reality until you actually are willing to put your life at great risk by getting on the back of the motorcycle with me, which I wouldn't actually say it's a very good way to exercise faith, for faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. Uh, and that's why I always say that faith in an object allows the object to do something for you. It is never what you do for the object. Uh, he goes on in verse 29 
to reveal to us what righteousness by faith is for everyone. He says, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, Paul now is coming back to the dilemma that, that rests within many of the churches um, when the church first came into existence, where there was a tribalism that often occurred in the church. There were the, those who had come out of the Jewish faith into an understanding that Jesus indeed was the long-awaited Messiah that Israel had been looking for. Uh, and then there were Gentiles who had no Jewish background and who were coming to faith in Jesus. And so those Jewish believers often tried to apply a certain level of legalism. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but everybody still needs to keep the law. And Paul addresses this in multiple letters. And so here he is once again showing that everybody is on the same playing field, that at the foot of the cross and through faith in Christ, we are all on the exact same level, if I can borrow the words of John Stott. I think that that is so essential uh, to a right understanding of the faith. This is why it is so heartbreaking and can be so maddening when I see Christianity used um, as, a, as a basis for any kind of uh, any kind of tribalism, whether it's racism or class wars, whatever it might be, uh, the gospel is for all of humanity. It's one of the things I love about the various images of Jesus that we have from around the world. Have you ever noticed that if you are in another part of the world and you see a painting of Jesus, that Jesus looks like that part of the world in which you were in? I mean. It's true that we're to have no engraven images of God and there is no description of Jesus' physicality uh, in the Gospels. I believe that the, uh, that the reason that people uh, paint Jesus in, in what is familiar to them is because Jesus truly is the one for the many and the many and the one. So I actually have no issue uh, when people say, oh, that's, that's a very white Jesus. I'm, man, I have seen paintings that are beautiful uh, from Asia where Jesus looks Asian, and I have seen paintings of Jesus uh, from, from churches in Africa, and he is very African, and this is because Jesus is the one for the many and the many and the one. On a spiritual level, it's absolute truth because he is the firstborn over a new creation, and because of Christ, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free all are one in Christ. And this is essential to a right understanding of the gospel. And so Paul is once again saying, there is no longer a, a Jewish Gentile distinction. We are saved the same way by putting our trust in God's redemptive purposes accomplished through his son. And so what does he go on to say? He says, now righteousness by faith establishes the law. Uh, Jesus himself said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, I came to fulfill them. And this is why Paul says in 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Uh, in other words, Paul is, is never saying that the law is bad. He is saying that the law condemns. 
The law is perfect. Uh, it is also impossible. And it is also why we need help. For Jesus, who is the lawgiver, also is the one who was able to keep the very law he gave, making a way for us by which we are no longer, we no longer have to be fearful of the ways that we have failed to live up to God's righteous and perfect standard. Um, but instead, we put our trust in the one who has. And now that we are found in him, we become transformed by the Holy Spirit. The law of God is fulfilled by the love of God. And this is why I think Paul so brilliantly um, states that uh, again and again, that love is the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus himself uh, played that out perfectly. This is a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Uh, some have called this the 11th commandment. Uh, and this is one of the unique calls upon the Christian community's life is that when we are born again, we are born into the family of God. And this is why we begin the love that is birthed in our hearts, that agape love that comes from Jesus is first and foremost played out in the Christian community because this is the first step in true evangelism. The ways that we love each other in the power of the Holy Spirit is one of the great testimonies. It's the great compelling witness to a lost world that what it is that we believe is true. I always argue that, that agape love is the only tangible evidence that we have truly been born again. It's not how much we know. It's how we live sacrificially for one another. And this is why um, boasting is false when it's based upon our own efforts. We can never boast in our own efforts. We can't praise ourselves. I, it would be ludicrous for me to, uh, to praise my own preaching, which I would never do. And honestly, uh, during Corona, where I spend every week looking into a camera lens and then having to review sermons, I hate watching myself preach. And I would just say, thank you for tolerating my face week after week. I am, it makes me even more confident that it must indeed be the Holy Spirit working and speaking to you in spite of the deeply flawed vessel by which he uses. There is no boasting in our ability. For what do we have, Paul writes, that we have not received? Uh, we can't boast in our efforts. Works as a means of salvation, unless perfect, are inadequate for boasting. No matter how accomplished you are, is it perfect? And, and really, no matter how gifted you see someone, what is the most offensive thing that, that, that we experience? Even, I hate that when I see a celebrity or an athlete uh, who is arrogant, it actually ruins their art for me. Uh, I remember uh, watching in an interview with Oasis when they first became huge and the outrageous statements that they were better than the Beatles or just like the constant self-praise and yet their, their, their whole, uh, no matter how good their music was, they were constantly marked by upheaval and infighting and that pride is always a downfall for humanity. To me, it became just a gross reflection of, of the way that sin turns us inward upon ourselves. Most people are deeply offended by a person who sings their own praise. A truly gifted person uh, is, is, is one who 
is not focused on the ways that they're gifted. I always have said that a man who demonstrated for me true humility was Tim Mackey. I have never met a more gifted uh, Bible scholar who almost, it was almost as if he was unaware of his own giftedness because what drove him was not a desire to be known, but it was, but it was just simply his love for God and for God's word. Uh, and it was in that humility that made him such an incredible academic. And I have been deeply turned off by academics that I have met, uh, specifically in the Christian world, who are driven by a sort of intellectual arrogance uh, that I just, I just find has no place uh, in the gospel. When I meet ministers that have that sort of that sort of demeanor, listen, pride is a is a dangerous thing for all of us, and we will all be cursed by it at times uh, because. Often we think we deserve more than we have. Often we, we feel like we're not being acknowledged the ways that we should be. But the fact is, is that the only reason I sit before you week after week is because Jesus saved me and I recognized that I needed help. Boasting is false when it is based upon our own efforts. Ephesians 2.9, not of works lest anyone should boast. Where boasting is impossible, it is impossible to boast with regards to faith. The very essence of faith is the absence of personal pride and confidence in our own strength. Faith is our heart going outside of ourselves to another who can save us. Where boasting is actually both true and possible, possible is when our boasting is in the gospel. It's then that we begin to purge boasting of its negative connotations. I mean, think of these as in closing. I just want you to think of the place where it is actually appropriate to boast. If salvation is God's work from start to finish, I always say that God did his part, he did the saving, and I did my part, the sinning. Uh, then, then what is it that we boast in? Well, we boast in the gospel. We boast in God. Romans 5.11 says not only that, but we also rejoice. We boast in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We boast in Christ. Romans 15.17, therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Be boastful of who Jesus is and what he has done. We boast in the cross. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, one of the things that's been deeply troubling to me uh, in as I look out at the sea of evangelicalism today is, is the diminishment of the cross in this current era. Listen, Paul says, I boast in nothing except the cross of Jesus. Why? Because it's at the cross that everyone is put at the same playing field. The cross is the power over the dominions of darkness. The cross is the means by which we find forgiveness. The cross is the door that opens up the possibility of resurrection life. We boast in our tribulations. How often do we boast in our achievements rather than in our problems? Romans 5.3, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Now, Paul's not talking about boasting if you're sick. I'm boasting in my cancer. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking specifically about suffering for the gospel. When we boast in Jesus, it will inevitably bring upon us the uh, the 
the distaste of the world because the gospel is never meant to bring about a neutral response. If you think that the key to being a good Christian is to never experience uh, suffering, then you have a absolutely false grid around what the gospel is. The gospel is offensive. The cross is an offense to those who are perishing. Too often we try to, uh, to modify our faith to make it somehow more palatable for modern sensibilities, to make it less offensive uh, to the world. But Jesus said that he did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. He himself is our peace, but that peace cuts through the lies of this world. And people do not like to be exposed. And for some people, they discover the truth of who God is and they die, they enter into that good death and discover life. But for others, the exposure puts them into a place of attack to protect what is theirs to defend their own rights and to defend their own, their own belief that they themselves are their own gods and have the ability to work out their own salvation for themselves without the help of anyone. Listen, the cross brings tribulation because it brings joy, because some people are deeply offended by another who says, I have found the truth and the truth has set me free. We boast in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Paul says we boast in it because it actually is part of God's plan for bringing us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Sometimes I think the lack of growth in our lives as Christians is due to our unbelievable ability to avoid suffering. Uh, we boast in our infirmities. 2 Corinthians 11.30, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. He, Paul said, even in my sicknesses, he's like, I boast in those things only because they cause me to recognize that the grace of Jesus is enough for me. So even when we are in an age like Corona, we can thank God for what he is doing, even though we do not fully understand it or see the picture in its whole. We know the end of the story, but we do not know the ins and outs of what is happening right now. And, and are we willing to boast in Jesus in the midst of something that is quite difficult? We're isolated from one another. Uh, we are dealing with an unseen enemy that is killing uh, people in droves and it is creating a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety. Are we falling victim uh, to those that live without hope? Or are we boasting in the fact that Jesus has already conquered death? We boast in the work, of, uh, work God has enabled us to do. I am grateful that God has gifted me to write songs for the church and to teach the word of God to the church to be a pastor. And, and Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians um, 11, verse 10, he says, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Like Paul's, Paul was boastful about God's work in the world. Uh, he's, he was excited about how God was using him as a conduit to bring other people into the kingdom of God. And I think that this is one of those ideas uh, where humility can be false. Is this like an, an, an unwillingness to even 
recognize that God has actually given us the gift of the Holy Spirit and has gifted us to be uh, participants in His saving plans. I recognize what a sinner I am, but man, the only thing I can boast in is Christ who is working in me and through me. I know what I'm called to and I know where He's gifted me. There is no pride in that. The question is, is, is it surrendered to Jesus? Uh, and and is, the, is the primary focus not self, but Christ and others? Finally, uh, we can boast in the hope of a future glory. If the coronavirus has done anything, it has reminded us that life is fragile, that death awaits each of us, that this life, if this is all there is, is pretty, can be pretty hopeless and futile. Because I don't know about you, but I'm 46 years old, a couple weeks from turning 47, and I am seeing how quick life goes by. I'm halfway through my life, and I am recognizing that it's gonna be before a blink of an eye that I am gonna be on my deathbed. And it's been wonderful, but it can't be all there is. There is a deep longing in the human heart. Uh, eternity, we are told, has been placed in our hearts. We believe that we were meant to continue. There is something, no matter what the evidences of the material world is, uh, what they are, there's still something in our very being that believes that death is not the end of the story. And this is why I think that we must once again restore the hope of a future with Christ. We have lost our, uh, we have lost our belief, uh, I think, as a reaction to the kind of hyper-focus that was common in the church in the, in the, the 70s and 80s and 90s around uh, pin the tail on the Antichrist and prophecy updates and, you know, what, what's happening now and what are the signs of the times and how do we know when Jesus is going to return and looking for who the, who the world leader is that will bring world unity and all of these obsessions with what I call newspaper theology has actually led to a diminishment of something that is biblically essential to the Christian life, and that is the belief that Jesus Christ is coming back in the flesh. I don't really care where you land in your eschatology, uh, how you believe it's going to happen, but the one thing that is essential to Orthodox Christian belief is that Jesus Christ is coming back in the flesh, and that all of us will receive as believers new glorified resurrection bodies where we will live with Christ for all time, where sin will no longer be a part of our daily experience. It will be a thing of the past, a thing that merely reminds us of how unbelievably loving our God is, that He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's why Romans 5, 2 says, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is why the church has always prayed the words of scripture, come Lord Jesus, come. Even now, come Lord Jesus, come. I believe that we are closer to Christ's return than we have ever been before. 
And that's a very vague statement that is irrefutable if you actually believe the gospel. But I actually believe that we will see Christ return in this lifetime. And if you're like, oh, you can't say that. Everybody said that. I believe every generation since the incarnation has been meant to believe that and live with that sort of tenacious hope. I want to see revival. I want to see Jesus come back in glory. And that hope, we are told, the hope of seeing him face to face purifies us just as he is pure, it says in 1 John. So here are the things that we boast in. There is no boasting in our salvation as if we had any part in it. We did the sinning, God did the saving. This is why the gospel is good news. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I pray that you'd push into Jesus this week push into him in this moment. If you don't know him, ask him, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Make me a new creation. Forgive me of my sins. Give me your Holy Spirit. Make me new. Help me. Save me. God is good, and he is ready to move into our lives in power. The question is, is will we trust him with all that we are? God has been asking this question of me much lately. Josh, let me show you the areas in your life that aren't truly surrendered to me. And I just ask, what are those areas in your life? Because the thing that hinders our ability to experience intimacy with Christ in the moment is often those, those places, those secret places, those secret strongholds where self has basically walled off any possibility of surrender. And I believe that we have to allow by the power of the Spirit to strip away the things that keep us from Him. We are as close to Jesus as we choose to be. Keep in mind, He has chosen to draw near to you. He has chosen you that through you He can reach others. May we participate in His redemptive purposes. May we rejoice in a gospel that is good news. This is our boasting. It is in Jesus Christ and his cross and nothing else. Amen. Love you guys.
Jesus, I will say 